Welcome to the New Mind Creator Podcast with your host, Maurice, the New Mind Creator. Today, I will be interviewing Thomas Boost Jr. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button so that you'll receive alerts when new episodes are available each week on Sundays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. So I was really, um, I guess, really surprised in a way, not I wouldn't even say surprise. It was really enlightening to know that you actually played college basketball for NYU. I know that's a really uh, popular university. How was that experience like for you? Well, it was it was a an experience that I I, I probably was uh, too sheltered to to really appreciate at the time. You know the old saying that it's unfortunate that. Uh, uh, youth is wasted on the young. But some things in life that you can't, um, you, you can't always be just looking back on. I, I, I find out at different stages of my life, among the most important things when you're young is mentorship. And mentorship with someone or group that is where you want to get to. If it's in music, if it's as a writer, if it's as an athlete, uh, whatever it is, you know, there, there was a, there was a, there was a saying and uh, you know, I have to uh, paraphrase, but if you really want to learn something about a particular subject, read eight books on it by eight authorities, and you'll walk away being much more enlightened about the subject that you picked. Well, that part of it is true. So if you want to become a great jazz musician, then it would behoove you to study some of the great jazz musicians throughout history about their life and about uh, their experiences, about their training, their discipline, their disappointments, and so forth. And, and that can be characterized in, in so many ways and so many, so many fields. So, you know, a lot of times as you get older, there are always things that you can look back on and say, I wish I had done that differently. Um, once again, to paraphrase, Robert Frost in uh, one of his uh, most famous books uh, mentions two roads divide in the yellow wood. And sorry, I took one as opposed to the other. And I think that's what life is about. But I think the thing that can help you with which road to take is if you have as much support and insight to what's down those roads. So many times when we're uh, 15, 17, 20 years old, we hop on down a road, but we have no real idea if it's going to lead us to where we want to go. So we're sort of like going along in life, experiencing life as it happens. And, and that's okay, because life should be enjoyed. But there are people in this world I'll give you an example. I, I had a friend who at, at 15, 16 years old, he had a girlfriend and him and I were pretty tight. He was a year younger than I. And I, you know, jokingly, you know, made a joke about his girlfriend. And he stopped me right in, 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 in my part of the conversation with it and just seriously, with a serious tone, told me, he said, listen, I really don't appreciate joking around about her because I'm really serious about her. And, and what it did was let me, let, me knew, let me know right then and there that this was not a road to travel with him. Well, you open that up and you can find out that life is a lot like that too. So one of the things as I look back on my life is to, to recommend mentorship for young people, you know, mm -hmm. uh, exposing 
to various things. If you're 15, 16 years old, you're blessed if you know exactly what you want to be and what you want to do in your life. Because many of us are not. And many of us who think we are may change as we mature. But the one thing that you can find that is, is, is you can be in the right place, but be the wrong person. You can be the right person, but in the wrong place. The, the science of it is to be the right person in the right place at the right time. And part of that is being in an environment that will nurture you and will help bring you through this learning curve that you have as you go through the different phases of adolescent, teenage, young adulthood, until you can navigate it, you know, off the strength of what your then experiences and exposures have brought to you, you know. I think also is that, um, you know, pondering on regret can be an unhealthy thing. How you profit by it is learning the mistakes that you've made, forgiving yourself for the mistakes that you made. Because who, who are we that we can't forgive ourselves when this is what God has done with us? So to forgive yourself and what that does, it opens you up to a much more fluent, insightful destination so that you won't repeat the same mistakes over and over again. It's an example of that is a, is a woman who cannot understand why she always gets herself into abusive relationships. And one of the reasons that she finds herself in abusive relationships is because she picks people who are abusive. So if you don't wish to be in an abusive relationship, learn the characteristics of what a man should be and how he should treat a woman. And when you, and how you can do that is surrounding yourself with people who have positive relationships or even people who have had bad relationships but have learned from those bad relationships. Because one of the, one of the things you, you don't want to find yourself in is the accompaniment of complainers, people who don't realize the blessings that God has bestowed upon them. They may have had, they may have 20 blessings in and around their life, but one or two misfortunes, and they want to dwell on the misfortunes, learn from the misfortunes, Profit from them, improve your direction, and then move on from them so that you don't repeat the misfortunes. And they will turn into fortunate things. So the at the at the top of the list that I that I would say to my younger self is to read up on what I want to be, you know, find a mentor or mentor or group of mentors in the direction I want to go into. Do not be afraid of hard work. Take care of your body, physically, your body, and take care of your mind emotionally. Put healthy things in your body and put healthy things in your mind, and you'll get much better results. Powerful. All of those things is so, so much. It's so rich. And how, who was the mentor in your life at an early age, who was that person that you really, that really mentored you and guided you? I had, I had a family that was, was, was my, my, my mentorship. You know, my, my, there were three people, two family members, my mother and father. And the third person was my high school coach. And I, I might as well put in a fourth group is that I, I just happen to have been blessed with through most of my life to run into and share great friendships with some great people that that I'm I'm friends with to this very day. 
And a friendship doesn't mean that you hang out all the time or that you see each other all the time. A friendship is what you take away from it and what's, what's shared and what's enduring. But the, the, the main thing that, that led me to, to the limited amount of success that I've had is my mother and father. And, and they were kind of different, you know. Uh, my mother was a very caring and a very demonstrative person when it came to her feelings and, and what was right, a sense of what was right. There were times all the way up through, you know, my, my first marriage when I was wrong. And unlike what a lot of mothers would have done, would have sided with me, but told me I was wrong and, 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 and it made me correct this, you know, in a sense, through a conversation, uh, you know, with my wife or whatever the circumstances. So I was fortunate enough to be, to have a mother who didn't worship the ground that I walked on to the extent that I could do no wrong. And the second component of that is I had a father that was extremely, uh, was an extremely strong black man. You know, he, he may have invented walk softly, but carry a big stick. <laughs> you know? he, didn't, uh, he didn't bother anyone. He was always willing to, to talk, to share, but he also didn't play. And he was a very serious person. You know, I got the loving from my mother and the strength from my father that sort of, you know, came into me and it helped me, you know, navigate those earlier years. There was a time I was my first 11 years I spent in the projects, but the uh, projects, they were called the Baxter Terrace. It's in Newark, New Jersey, but the projects that I, I was in was not what you think of as projects now. Because we were one of the first families to move into that project. It was brand new. And it was it was one that was it was clean. People were 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 neighborly. They were uh, cooperative. And during this time, which which I'm talking about, my parents took me there I, I learned the things that, that I had to learn there because of the serenity of what was around there. But, but this project was, was reminiscent of the time. They had two sides to it, and it was divided by a street called James Street. As you walk down James Street, to the left was all black, primarily black and minorities. And to the right was, a, was all white uh, or Caucasians, you know, um, i.e. segregation. I didn't know, you know, that it was, per, that it was segregated. I, I rarely went over to the other side and I was happy where I was, but it was segregated. And that was in 1941. And it remained that way probably well into the 50s. We left there in 1952, and I think at that time when we left there, it was still the black side and the white side. And to fast forward, I was a, a teacher at a high, local high school, Malcolm X Shabazz, and I was a, uh, a crisis counselor. And I'm having a session with one of, one of my students, and the Baxter Terrace came up. And in the conversation, you know, I told him this story that on the, which would have been the north side was black and on the south side was white. And, and then he said that, wow, that explains why they call that white something. But by that time, blacks were blacks and, and other minorities were living on that side. So it wasn't, you wouldn't have known that unless you knew the history of it. Cause I'm talking about a conversation that took place maybe in 1980, 85 or something. So that's uh, 30, 35, 37, 38 years later. And it had evolved to a mixture. It was diverse by then. So, you know, the, the way I started on this was that I was more concerned of the, the, the manner in which my father would take 
if I got into trouble outside of the house than I was even the police. I was more afraid of my father than I was of the, of the, the police in the general area. And, and that boded well for me because as I grew old, I became an athlete that took up a lot of my time, kept me out of a lot of trouble until I was able to negotiate that more on my own as far as what was right and wrong. In my formative years, as a five, six, seven, eight, 10, 12 years old, I pretty much did what my parents told me was right or wrong. But they instilled this in me. They instilled a, a sense of fairness, fair play, not to take advantage of anybody, not to cheat anybody, not to bully anybody, you know? So all these things started formulating in, in my mind as I got to be 11, 12, 14, 16, 17, until, you know, my individuality started to take a stronger sense and having been molded this way with other people coming in and out of my life, I uh, became a, what I consider a much more positive person. And then when I was 14 going to 15 years old, I, uh, I went to high school and for the next three years, I met a man, he was, a, he was a, the high school coach at my high school. He was Jewish and he instilled the additional outside things that I needed to know. You know, um, I, my parents were, particularly my mother was always conscious of how you look when you walked outside. But he took it another step. He taught, he taught, he taught me how to dance. You know, um, we used to do the um, the, uh, the the tango. The the uh, there was the most popular one at that. It wasn't the merengue, but it was one more popular than that. And he did it in a class, and it was in a class that was 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 mixed, and and nobody felt silly or anything. But that was just one side of him. But he also showed me discipline through being the coach that he was. He taught me by what was fair play to be a gentleman. Fast forward once again, I went to take a, a, a series of master courses over at Jersey City State Teachers College. And the person who was the director of the program was a former high school official. And I had to meet with him. And when I introduced myself, he says, I know who you are. It turned out that he had refereed many of my high school games. And he told me something. He said, you know what I can always say about you is that you were always a gentleman. And, and that wasn't just a credit to me, but it was a credit of the things that I've just mentioned to you. My parents, you know, how you conduct yourself when you're out. My coach about being a gentleman. Uh, you can be uh, rough and tough and hard in sports, but you can still be gentleman, a gentleman and, and, and this, you can be, you believe in fair play with it. You don't have to cheat or do things that are above and beyond what the rules of the games are. So he sort of reinforced that, you know, with me because I was the type of person that, you know, if the ball went out of bounds, instead of just throwing it anywhere, I, I instinctively, I'd hand it to the ref. If I got a foul on me, I wouldn't stand there arguing with him left and right. You know what I mean? I would use sir, you know, or ref, you know, some kind of connotation of respect. It was just ingrained in me. I didn't, you know, say this is what I should do. By this time, I had been more or less programmed to do this, you know. But the other side of it, too, as, 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 as the project evolved, is that, you know, when you have so many proximities of kids, there was also a toughness that you had to develop. And while I've never been one to really want to fight, you always had to be able to take care of yourself so you were not bullied in that circumstances. So that, that's sort of like a, a quick summary of, uh, you know, coming up and, you know, my, my formative years that the people who touched me probably the most were those three people with a series of just having to uh, associate. And I think sports played a lot with that, having associated with some other good people who became close friends of mine. We never talked in terms of robbing something or doing this or doing that. 
most of the things that we talked about were positive things, not things that, you know, we couldn't share with people in the light, but would be something that we'd be hidden in the darkness with it. True. So this day and age, uh, you mentioned a lot of really good stuff, but in this day and age, there's a, even during this pandemic time, which really separates us, meaning we can't get close to people who we really care about. And just in general, it limits our interaction with others face to face. Even before that pan- this pandemic <clears throat> we're living in happened, we're in a computer age where the social interaction is lacking and also we lack interpersonal skills and relationship skills and you talked about relationships what are some ways people can foster and nurture relationships well this is the this is the main thing the the pandemic is it's a totally different thing you know we're sort of going through a maze and discovering things now because you know no one has really gone through anything like this, you know? So this is something different. So I'll, I'll totally separate that from what I'm getting ready to say. Even though we have all the social things that are going on, you know, the, the mistakes that are being made is, is that you have to start with the child when they're young. You can't wait and say, well, I'll do this when they get to be 13 or 14. You got to start from day one and you've got to be corrective at day one, but you've also got to set a, you got to set an example. Now, one of the first things that I noticed, let, let me give you, let me give you this and then I'll come back to that is I worked a number of years at the Essex County detention facility, which was a holding place for juveniles who had, who were waiting court and who had committed crimes. In my first 10, 12 years there, I worked as the, in the admission office, which I processed the kids when the police brought them into the facility. And I had to do like a little case history on them. You know, their names, addresses, the schools they went to, their parents' name, who they live with, and so forth, you know? And I started that job in 1969. And in 1969, and this is in an inner city, Newark, I would say 75% at least of the kids that came in, they were, there was a mother and father in the house. Now, this was in 69. And this was the case probably for about the next five, six, seven, eight years. And then as we started to approach the 70s, all of a sudden, you started having a lot of single parents who were the head of the household when the kids were brought in. We're talking about kids the same age. Usually they were between 13, maybe not quite turning 18 yet. So primarily between 13 and 17. Sometimes we would get a 12. Sometimes we'd get an 18, depending on certain circumstances with it. But when we came into the, the 70s, all of a sudden, when they asked that question, most of the kids, many of the kids, maybe it had gone down to 50-50. There were 50% of the kids lived with a single parent. And then as we came through the 70s and into the 80s, all of a sudden, and remember in the 80s was when the crack thing started blowing up in the inner cities. And then into the 80s, we started seeing a lot more kids who came in and were living with the grandparents or the grandmother. And the mother was in and out of their lives because of things she may or may not have been doing. So in that period of uh, like 20 plus years, you saw the evolution start to change of the impact on the home and the structure of the home. So I just wanted to share that with you. And then you, you, you've got, you've got the, the gangs were always around. There's hardly a time in this country where there weren't gangs, but they were never the majority or a significant number of it. But then you started having single parents, 
and grandparents who were head of the house, you started having kids who most of their nurturing needs weren't being made. So they made them a lot more vulnerable to the things that the gangs were saying as far as being part of a, a new constructed family, you know? And also it was one of protection too. So if you're in a gang and people knew you were in a gang because you were wearing certain colors and so forth, they knew not to do certain things because you were represented by whoever that gang was to whatever degree it was. So it was also, it wasn't always about violence. Sometimes it was about protection and well-being with it, you know, with it. Good. So you mentioned um, about, you know, the 40s and then the 60s. And I know during that time, um, you know, racial tensions were really high in some areas and possibly all over. But how were you able to navigate through those times and how did you not allow those things that were against you to stop you from achieving your goals? Well, once again, I, I was blessed in this sense. Uh, even though I lived in the projects, ever since I could remember, my parents sent us, my, I had two older sisters. My parents sent us down to um, Hilton, Georgia. And I spent probably up until I was 15, the year that Emmett Till was killed. I went down there every summer up until that summer, and I may have been down there that summer that Emmett Till was killed. Because Emmett Till, I was about five months older than Emmett Till. Emmett Till's birthday is June, July, mine is in January. And our circumstances were very similar. I came from the Northeast. He came from the Midwest or the, uh, the Chicago, Detroit area. You know, Northerners who were not used to being subjugated totally to, to whites. And you talk with them on a more equal basis, which could be very detrimental down, down South in the deep South. So when, when that happened to Emmett Till, that was the last time I ever went down there by myself. I went down there once or twice more, but I went down there with my parents and so forth. So that was, that was a big change in my life at that time. But, but here's, here's, here's the thing I'm saying about, and I, 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 I digress when I told you about the uh, detention facility, but this is my point now, and it calls for stronger parenting, is that the thing that's missing is that, you know, it's like if you've played sports, you know, in order to become a good team, you got to bond, you know? And you can only bond by spending time together and talking together and the ups and downs that happen in a relationship. And that's even more true in a family. So one of the things that, one of the first things that went out the door would also the change in the head of the house was that families stopped sitting down to eat together. You know, the advent of the McDonald's and the, you know, the Burger Kings and so forth. And, you know, there, there, there was a, an appetite for that by kids. You know, kids all of a sudden would rather eat at McDonald's than eat their, their parents cooking. And then their parents realized, hey, I can take a day off. Let them eat at McDonald's. So it was a, a mutual thing that sort of began to creep in. So the family stopped eating together as they once did. And that's an important thing because a lot of things come up, but it's also a bonding time that happens when you sit down and you, you partake, you know, and, and one of the first places you should be able to do that is with your family as you're sitting around the table together. Now there are circumstances when that's not possible. Father works different hours or so, but whoever's left in that family whose home should still sit down at a prescribed time and have dinner together. And everything else around them stops because that's family time. Another thing that I was blessed in that, that made me calmer was that we always did things. I, I can't tell you how often I went to the beach, the amusement park, 
the, you know, uh, shows that I was taken to by, particularly by my mother and, 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 and things along those lines, you know? So my first 15 years, I was rarely in the inner city when a lot of this stuff starts during the summer. Because when you're in school all day during the winter and the spring and so forth, you know, and it gets dark earlier, there's not a lot as much time to get in trouble as it is in the summer when you got the whole day, you know, to just do whatever it is that you, you, you know, you and your friends are going to do. So I was always removed from that and sent down south where I experienced a tremendous uh, 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 exposure to what farm life was. And my grandparents happened to own their own farm and they were pretty much self-sufficient. They, they had cows and hogs and mules and horses and watermelon patches, sugarcane patches, cotton, and, and all this stuff was being worked and so forth with it, you know? So it was a whole new environment. My grandfather built everything that you could see in that area, the house, the shed, the barn, uh, you know, he did the plowing and, uh, you know, he had people come in and help him with the picking and the harvesting and so forth. And I used to see all that because I was down there from the, the weekend that school ended until I came back about two weeks before school started all week so I could get any clothes that I needed to get for school. And this went on for years, you know? And I, and I, I look back on it and, and, and what it did was, you know, it, 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 it affected my temperament. You know, there's something that can be debilitating about seeing concrete 24 seven. Do you know what I'm saying? Without any greenery to really speak of, unless you seek it out. And, and I think that's what sort of like gave me appreciation for nature and the calmness and the, you know, not to get overly excited about this and that, you know? Now, the, they, they've had things up and it was started in New York where they used to send kids for a week or two. I forgot what it was called, the Fresh Air Fund or something. And it was a wonderful program because it got inner city kids out of the city for a week or two and let them see nature and, and ride horses and, and lakes and things that they weren't used to doing to expose them to that, you know? It makes a difference in your life when you're exposed to things along those lines. So one of the things that has been lost is the family doesn't sit down. It doesn't matter. You know, you sit down together today with all the, all the things going on. You do not sit down with your telephone, your computer, or anything else. This is family time, and all that should cease, you know. Then you also, as a parent, have to realize that just like anything else that you want to have that's constructive, you've got to make plans for it. So there's got to be a certain amount of your child's day that you've got, especially during the summer, that you've got to plan for with activities and things. You just can't let a kid go outside and just play all day. You could be lucky and that play will be wholesome and everything. But that's why boys clubs and YMCAs and camps and, you know, uh, museums and historical things are are there for you to actually do and in, in, in supportive with your children so that they can see this. So that all that, that outside noise that's coming into them is never 24 seven. You're supplementing it with something that's more, you know, humane and more cultural so that they can see this, you know? We have kids who live in the inner city who, especially in, in, the, in the Northeast area that may be you know, before they're 18, maybe they've seen New York. But many of them have never seen anything too much outside of their immediate neighborhood, you know? And that, that's not enough exposure. Now, there's, there's uh, through television and computers and so forth, you can see more now. And vicariously, you can, you can experience these things. But there's nothing like transporting yourself to those things so that you could see it, you know? So that's, that's two things that, that, that they could instill right away. When school starts, I really believe that every kid that goes to school, wherever possible, should have some type of after-school activity 
at that school. Whether it's sports, debate, uh, drama, music, whatever it is, there's something in that school that that child, when they come in as a freshman, should be introduced to. Uh, preferably something that they enjoy, you know? And it, 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 it gives them a little bit more of a cultural background, but it also teaches them about team unity and team play and team thing. This was, this was a uh, statistic that was given to me over 25 years ago, that uh, when they did statistics on academic performances, found out that on a norm, on a, a normal uh, uh, graph, that kids who played in the, in the orchestra or played an instrument did better academically than kids who didn't, almost across the board, especially on a percentage. Maybe not all of them, but like maybe 85, 90% of them, when they were compared to the other parts, components of the school with kids who had no activities or limited activities, did so much better academically, socially, in school than the kids who did not participate. And on a lesser degree, with other you know, things that you brought, brought in contact with others, that there had to be a group cooperation to reach a goal. You know, so that that's another thing. So that that's three components that four, really, the when, you know, the, the, the one is the um, uh, eating together. The other one is is planning together activities, you know, for your kids. Uh, a third one is when they go to school to make sure that they're participating in some type of activity in school. And uh, the fourth one is, you know, introducing them to cultural things or experiences that they normally will not see, particularly if they're in the inner city. And the suburbs, you don't have as much, you know, because they go out of their way to make as much of the natural surroundings as they possibly can. So when you go into the suburbs, you see blooming trees and, and uh, uh, grasslands and, you know, um, some of these, some of the schools even have stadiums and, you know, tennis courts and all the rest of this stuff that, uh, you know, kids can uh, choose to play or choose not to play, be exposed to this or not to be exposed to this. Yeah. So how did that uh, Emmett Till um, situation affect you? Because you mentioned that you all were close in age. How did that affect you? Well, it, 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 it affected me this way. Uh, my mother particularly recognized that supposedly what happened with Emmett Till, he went into a store and he, he ordered something and the white lady was behind there. In reality, he probably did. He probably just said something that only down in the deep south could be misconstrued as anything. You know, like maybe the way he said hi or hello or he smiled or something. She recanted on her story many years later that he wasn't fresh with her and so forth, you know. But the, the thing was, is that he would not have been as insulated if he had grown into South to know what to say and what not to say, what to do and what not to do, because he didn't experience that being being from the North. Do you know what I'm saying? He was he was in the north. He was sitting next to little white girls and little white boys. You know, he was uh, he may have had some friends that were were white. You know, the world was totally different. And he was young. He was 14 years old at the time. That was my life as I grew up there. So my mother, you know, knew I was, you know, overly friendly in a sense. I wasn't I was shy, but I had no problem talking to people. And she saw the potential of something like that happening to me. Although this happened to him in Mississippi, Georgia was, was, wasn't that much different. You know, maybe not quite as brutal as Mississippi, but, you know, definitely a cousin of it. So that's why that was, that was, that was done. She didn't want me down there being unsupervised when she wasn't around or my father wasn't around because of the potential danger of my being outspoken with white people, 
and being out of my place as they have down there at that time. So I would say what there are some things that how do you believe your mindset? I would say I would ask it this way. How did you think your mindset differ from those people that you knew growing up who didn't succeed at what they were trying to do compared to yours? How do you think your mindset was different? Well, you know, it's not that they didn't succeed. You know, many of them or some of them went on and uh, did some things career-wise greater than I, you know. But particularly with the boys, because the girls usually were not allowed to just run, you know, if you lived in a project. Most most, uh, parents' mothers kept their daughters occupy and you know not all but many of them did you know so it wasn't as detrimental to the girls as it was to the boys with that but I wasn't as angry I wasn't as quick to fight I believed in talking you could always fight you know but once you fought you couldn't take it back so I reasoned more as a young kid you know There was nothing heroic to me about fighting because even if you won, you probably would get hurt also, you know? So I wasn't as, uh, as quick a temper. I wasn't as angry as many of my friends were. I wasn't into this, you know, let's get together and go jump some white boys, you know, mentality or, uh, you know, th- this this becomes almost a pack thing. And generally in a pack, there's always one or two leaders. And they're the main ones who's putting all this into you. You know, I was, I never had a pack mentality. You know, I had friends and of course they influenced me to a degree, but they influenced me in things that were positive that I agreed with. But I was more of a, of a, of an individual than part of a group. And I thought of myself more as an individual than the, that I needed, I didn't need any uh, uh, reinforcement or approval along those lines from my peers. I mean, you always need some, you know, I, I, I tended to dress differently to my own things. If I saw something I liked, even if uh, my friends thought it was corny, if I liked it, I still got it, you know? Uh, things along those lines that sometimes if you're part of the group, you wouldn't be caught with anything different unless you were the leader of that group and then you were the trendsetter, you know? Mm -hmm. So you mentioned it it sounds like you you were able to reason when things happened, even if it was not something that you really want to happen, you you were willing to talk about it or come to some resolution uh, about certain situations that caused you to navigate your way through certain situations where others who just react, like if you just react, that's uh, a totally different thing because it could get you in some trouble oftentimes. Definitely so, because I, I always seem to have the ability to reason. You know, and as a result of that, growing up, before I really got some size on me, <clears throat> I, I didn't have a lot of fights. You know, I because, you know, first of all, I knew triggers. One of the worst things, you know, growing up as a kid is to talk about somebody's mother, even though with your friends, you could joke and so forth about it. But you understood that it was never personal. It was just a a friendship thing that you were doing. They called it hiking and so forth at that time. You know, but 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 but, uh, you know, aside from who your friends were, you know, that that wasn't tolerated. So one of the things that I did is I I didn't spend a lot of time with people who did a lot of what they call woofing and selling noise and were argumentative in all of this. I, I did evolve with one theory that you can say anything that you want because it's your mouth but don't put your hands on me. Mm. 
then it becomes our problem, you know? And I sort of like carried that through. I never put my hands on anybody else, but I will not let you put yours on me, you know? And sometimes you got to know when to leave, you know? When you hear some talk going on and you see what direction is going in, you know, back door, side door, front door, whatever it is, it's time to go because you're not part of that and you can see where this is going. So as a result of that, you know, I didn't have uh, any kind of criminal record growing up, or, you know, anything along those lines. I did a few little things, you know, that, that I uh, would not be proud of, but they were in the minority. And then, you know, like a life of doing those types of things. And before you know it, you you know, all of a sudden, you don't even find those things that your friends are doing exciting anyway. You know, where I ended up working for a number of years when I was a kid, it wasn't too far from where I lived, maybe about four or five blocks. And at that time, they called it the parental home. And it was a uh, they had. um uh, where they sent kids, you know, like if your kid was picked up for shoplifting or anything, it could be as low as shoplifting or it could be as high as a homicide. They brought the kids to the parental home and so forth, you know, so everybody knew, you know, where it was. Well, you know, they almost had this saying that if somebody disappeared, you know, during school time and you didn't see them for a couple of weeks or so, you 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 knew that they were probably locked up. And, uh, and they were in the parental home. Or if you didn't see them for an extended time, you, you knew they were in a place like Jamesburg, which is where they sent juveniles who were sentenced for doing something, you know? And then if you saw him, like uh, maybe you didn't see him the whole winter and you saw him that next summer and he had, he had put on about 15 pounds and he was buffed and everything, you, you know he was probably in the parental home lifting weights regularly. You know, absent, you know, in the neighborhood, came back looking healthy and strong and everything, you know. So there were telltale signs, even without a conversation, that we recognize in and about our areas or our neighborhoods, you know, with it. So what would you leave our audience with? What valuable piece of information? What's your one to grow on? that we're in this together. Uh, It's difficult for me to hate white people because there have been a few white people who have been instrumental in my life. And there have been friends of mine that I have that are white. So I can never approach it totally as hate whitey, you know, or do anything along that way. And as a result of that, I tend to take it case by case, person by person. You know, uh, politeness, respect, I expect that back. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm not, we're not going to fight about it. I'm just going to disassociate with you because you have a right to think how you wish to think. And I'm not your father. I can't tell you how, but I don't have to associate with you on it. You know, I, I, I think we have to recognize the one of the uh, old golden rules, uh, do unto others as you wish them to do unto you, you know? And I I think that's been forgotten. And even, I can't say more so because, you know, we've got a 400 and something year uh, history in this country that it was never the mantra, do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. Because if that was the case, we wouldn't be talking about all this racism and all this violence against minorities and so forth, you know? So I think you have to always be aware of that in your judgment. Would you want somebody to do or say that to you? And if you wouldn't and you wouldn't accept it, why would you say it to somebody? You know? And I, I think that um, it, it's, not, it's not a terrible thing to spend quiet time, you know, by yourself in reflection, you know, soft music, reading, uh, meditation, you know, something that, that, that slows you down a minute and lets you think. Because, you, you know, I used to tell the kids, you know, the mind is like a muscle. If you want to get stronger, then you'll lift weights. 
and you'll do exercises to make that muscle stronger. Well, the mind is the same thing, but the weights are reading, you know, writing, conversation, um, like exploration, and to open up your mind so that in a sense it makes your mind stronger and the ability to be able to handle more. Whereas if you isolate it and just have it, you know, just this, you know, spend your whole time hating or just zooming in on negative thoughts and negative words and so forth, you know, that infiltrates your mind and it adversely affects you, you know, no matter what it is. You know, uh, advertisement and everything have been so far ahead of the rest of us. They have something that they named about 40 years ago, and it was called subliminal uh, ads. And, and the ads were not for your conscious, but your subconscious. So there would be flashes of things that your conscious eye or mind would not pay attention to because it was only a, a, a small part of a flash of something. But your subconscious would pick it up. And in there would start formulating different ways that you would embrace whatever it was that was going on. You know, it's like if you were looking at a show and, and, the, and this is an extreme case and, and they, they flashed, they hit it in the picture, but a picture of a gun, you know, and when you looked at it, you, you may not have been able to pick it up was a gun. But your, your, your subconscious mind is going to pick it up, you know, and you're going to be thinking more and I sometimes not even realize. It's like with jingles, which are more obvious, you know, you don't even be thinking about it, but you may all of a sudden be somewhere totally away from it and find yourself humming that jingle. Well, that jingle was set up there more for the subconscious than the conscious, you know something that you could be doing something else, not even thinking about that. And all of a sudden it got into your subconscious. Well, subliminal is even stronger than that, you know, with it. Thank you for listening to The New Mind Creator Podcast with your host, Maurice, The New Mind Creator. This podcast has been sponsored by Abundant Sports and True Serum. Head over to www.mauriceflournoy.com to receive more motivation and insight to help create your new mind.